Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. joining us for another episode of the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. Today we're talking with Greg Johnson. He is the program administrator for the Interstate Bridge Replacement Program. And when I say interstate, we're talking the states of Washington and Oregon. Greg, welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. Bernie, thank you so much. Glad to be here. Where I usually like to start most of my podcasts, not every listener is familiar with this particular program. So why don't you give us a quick overview of what's involved with it and what you're doing? So Bernie, the states of Washington and Oregon are separated by the Columbia River, the iconic river that Lewis and Clark took out to the Pacific Ocean. So it is historical. It is tremendously important to this region. But another important asset is Interstate 5 is the only West Coast interstate that goes between Mexico and Canada. So our project is at the intersection of these two important features. So the I-5 bridge project or the interstate bridge replacement program is seeking to replace a 106-year-old bridge that goes across the Columbia River We touched down on an island in the middle of the Columbia River called Hayden Island. And we're also building five miles or rebuilding five miles of freeway that has seven interchanges. And it impacts the city of Portland on the Oregon side and the city of Vancouver on the Washington side. Whereabouts in the process is the project right now? That is a tremendously interesting and loaded question. (laughs) So this program to replace this bridge is actually 20 years old. And this program went through a NEPA process or National Environmental Policy Act process and reached a record of decision almost 10 years ago. And at the time, it wasn't funded by the state, so it went dormant. But in 2019, the governors of each state said this project is too important to lie dormant. So they recreated the program, dubbed it the Interstate Bridge Replacement Program. And in July of 2020, they brought me on board to be the administrator. This program is leveraging the past work that um, has been done. But we're looking at what has changed in the 10 years that this has um, been dormant. And Several things that have changed is a focus on both climate and how this program and project will impact climate change, but also focusing on equity. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that when interstates were initially built, there was not a focus on which communities were being harmed by this, which communities got benefits from the construction of projects like this. So this project is focused on all of those issues. So We think it is a a very unique multimodal project. We're also looking at building high capacity transit across the river to connect these two communities and truly make it one region by providing that multimodal aspect. 
the current bridge or bridges are lift bridges. Is it yeah. envisioned that the replacement will be a lift bridge as well? We've looked into this issue. It is not the will of this region to put another lift bridge on the interstate. We are working with our partners at the Coast Guard to understand the, the needs of um, river traffic and the heights that are required to not have this be a lift bridge. So we understand that there are some impacts to users on the upstream side who uh, ship some large things. So we are in conversations with those folks. But once again, we think that having a, a stoplight, the only stoplight on I-5 uh, between Mexico and Canada is probably not a, a wise modern thing to do. You're working for two states. Now, while they may cooperate, there are sometimes challenges with working for two different states, two different governors, two different state DOTs. How do you deal with some of those challenges? So, Bernie, this, this is this is a unique challenge. Um, earlier in my career um, in Michigan, I was on the earlier phases of the Gordie Howe Bridge that connects Detroit, Michigan with Windsor, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And so working across borders is uh, something that I've done before. This is a unique challenge, and there are a lot of uh, partners who have interest in uh, seeing this project go forward, and they have strong opinions. So we are in a, a very iterative, collaborative process to make sure that the needs of all of the partners and foremost, that the needs of the communities are met in this large multi-state project. When you talk about communities, the bridge goes between Portland, Oregon and Vancouver, Washington, but there are more communities than just those two cities that are involved with this, aren't there? Yes, this, this is truly a regional and a national project. I-5 is a pipeline for freight movements throughout the West Coast, and it connects all of the major West Coast ports. So going all the way from Seattle down to uh, ports in uh, Los Angeles and San Diego, this is an important national and international piece of infrastructure. But it also has a local flavor to it. We will be impacting two very vibrant communities on either side, and they will be host to what we are estimating to be a $6 billion piece of infrastructure. And so we are, we are being very careful to frame this as not just a local project, but also a project of national importance, but not forgetting that it will be sitting in someone's backyard. In just a moment, I'll be talking more with Greg Johnson about equity and other aspects of the project right after this word. Do you want to reach more than 17,000 transportation professionals? Podcasts like this one are a great way to reach a dedicated audience of listeners. Sponsoring an ITE podcast is a cost-effective way to gain exposure and build brand awareness. ITE offers podcasts on key issues like safety, connected and automated vehicles, and transportation management systems and operations, ensuring your message is heard by the right people. For more information, contact Jill Andrew at the Wyman Company. Her email is J-A-N-D-R-E-U at the Wyman Company, W-Y-M-A-N dot com. You mentioned earlier about equity is an important aspect of this particular project. 
How are you addressing equity? Uh, what can be done? Because certainly this is a, a long construction project. This is not something that's going to be done in six months. It's going to disrupt neighborhoods to some extent or another. And it's also something that I guess you probably had some experience with at the Gordie Howe Bridge, because I know that there were people who were displaced with that particular project. How do you deal with equity and the neighborhoods? So, Bernie, my my history um, in the transportation industry, and I've worked um, for DOTs in both Michigan, Maryland, and these two DOTs out here. And the DOTs don't have a great history of equitably treating communities of concern. And so one of the first things I did is create the position of a principal equity officer for our program. We also have a principal climate officer to keep focus on those issues. But making sure that the community's voice is heard, making sure that when there are pre-apprenticeship training programs and making sure that the community understands the opportunities that can come out of an investment like this. We have an equity advisory group that meets monthly, that they look at our processes and make sure that, number one, we are, we are meeting our goals of reaching out to the most diverse number of communities in the region, and also that our outcomes are equitable. That team has been meeting for the last year and a half, and it has um, done some tremendous things. They have created an equity framework that will be the basis of how we um, deal with uh, the community, not only today, but in the future as the construction is ongoing and making sure that the community's voice is reflected throughout this program. Greg, your background involves working on equity issues. Why is equity and your experience with equity so central to big infrastructure projects such as this one? This is tremendously personal to me. When I was a four-year-old kid living um, in Michigan, north of Detroit, the Michigan State Highway came through and bought our house. And they moved us out. And that was a year and a half of being unsettled and my siblings were in three different schools in that year and a half before we finally settled down in the home where I would finally grow up. But it was so tremendously disruptive. And at the time, I thought it was fun. You know, I got to live with my grandparents or <laughs> uncles. And, but my father was tremendously impacted by that purchasing of his home. Mm-hmm. And he told me that story as far back as I can remember. And it informed me when I when I eventually went to work for um, a DOT, it informed me that you have to sit and understand the impacts that these projects can have on folks. You can't just take the we're right, we're going to take your home, get out of our way attitude. It's tremendously important to me that DOTs and programs and projects that I'm associated with take equity and take that human scale to these programs. And I've sat in um, in many a, a living room when I was in the Detroit area to talk to folks when we absolutely have had to take their home, but to talk to them about the options that were available to them and make sure they understood that they did have 
compensation, fair compensation coming to them. So those conversations are never easy, but they have been a part of my of my life and my career. So I take those lessons with me everywhere I go and make sure that folks who have traditionally not been heard on um, projects like this that displace homes or, or businesses, that I am sensitive to it and that we are having a conversation with those folks and not just sending them a, a letter saying, guess what, we need some of your property or all of your property. Certainly there are many different stakeholders that you're going to be involved with in this. Uh, you talked about freight, obviously, that's a big part. You have commuters, you have the neighborhoods that are involved. I would imagine that communications is a huge focus of what you're having to do. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about the communications effort, everything from telling people how they might be affected and, and how their roads are going to be perhaps switched around while the construction is going on to maybe more mundane things that uh, people are just going to want to be hearing about and be interested in knowing. Well, Bernie, one of the things that, that we did is we brought on a powerful communications public affairs team to help us get our message to a variety of folks in this region. We have a website that is in multiple languages because we have folks who, who speak nine different languages in this region. So that was one of the first things that we did. We also made sure that we had access to folks with disabilities. Um, we created a tactile model for vision impaired folks who can feel this model and get a feel for how this bridge will set and how, what it will look like in their community. We have um, the um, School for the Blind as well as the School for the Deaf in our project area. We are looking at how can we reach out to those communities and make sure that we are giving them job opportunities to work on this program. We have a full blitz on through social media, um, our Facebook presence. Uh, we do TikTok videos. We do a number of things to make sure we are reaching all demographics in this region. And, you know, not just looking through the traditional uh, methods of communicating with folks. We make sure that we have American Sign Language um, interpretation at meetings. We do closed captioning in English and Spanish. So this is a, a full out communications effort to make sure that we are reaching all of those communities that in the past may not have had a voice in a project like this. You talked about this being a multimodal project and transit is obviously part of that, but I'm curious, are bicycles and pedestrians, will they be able to use this new span as it anticipated? They will be. So Portland is one of the um, one of the most dense bicycle usage urban areas in the United States. And they have a an extensive bicycle walking rolling network on both sides of the river. So our commitment and one of the purpose and need statements of this project is a recognition of the biking, walking, rolling community and making sure that we are doing the appropriate investments, not only on the bridge, but when we get them across the bridge, we're looking to connect them to trails and facilities on each side of the bridge to make it easy for folks to walk, bike, or roll. 
we deem this as a multimodal project because we're serious about this not just being a highway-centered project. Giving folks alternatives to getting in the car for a single occupancy vehicle trip is tremendously important. Uh, we're looking at how we can be a leader in that future of transportation alternatives with this program. Well, certainly not going to hold you to any predictions, but just understanding that people are probably curious as to what kind of a timeline are we looking at here in terms of construction starting, even going so far out as to say when this project might be finished? Our crystal ball is pretty clear as our goals for this program. So what we're looking at, Bernie, we right now are in the um, supplemental environmental impact statement process. And we are hoping to have that draft out late summer of this year. And the next step will be getting to a final supplemental slash record of decision, which is the last step in the federal NEPA process by the end of 2024. So all along, we will be designing different elements and we're hoping to have the first construction contract begin sometime in late 2025 with the big bridge project itself starting sometime in 2026. And we're looking for the entire project to be complete. And one of the last things you will see will be the removal of the existing um, I-5 spans as we switch traffic over to, uh, to the new spans. We anticipate that will be sometime in the year 2034. So this is a long-term dig in, get a lot of things done, and it's a large project. We, we estimate that the project overall will cost in the neighborhood of $6 billion. And is most of that money coming from federal sources, the states? Where, where is the funding anticipated to come from? That's a great question. And, and we were looking at this as a three-legged stool of funding. So the first leg is that each state, we will be asking for a billion dollars from both the state of Washington and a billion dollars from the state of Oregon. So right now, Washington has committed their billion dollars. We are going to be in the um, Oregon legislature um, this year with the grand hope of getting that done as well. So that's the first leg of the stool. The second is federal funds. With President Biden's IIJA legislation that was passed in 2021, funding for projects like this have hope. So we will be um, applying for federal grants to help get this thing built. And the third leg of that stool is we will also be looking at the use of tolling to help pay for this bridge. And the tolling has a secondary benefit of helping manage demand through this corridor. This is a once in a generation opportunity for a large program like this to attract federal dollars. And we believe we are well positioned with this being a multimodal project on one of the, one of the more iconic interstates in the country to receive a good rating for federal highway dollars as well as federal transit administration dollars to uh, help build the light rail that's been agreed to um, across the river as well as enhance the connections with the bus rapid transit system on the Vancouver side of the river. 
Greg, any final thoughts? One of the things that I think is that we are we're trying to build a corridor for the future. Right now, the folks who built uh, this original crossing of the Columbia River, and this was the first vehicle crossing of the Columbia River. And once again, 106 years ago, and that bridge is still serving um, this region. Wow. But it is earthquake vulnerable. Off the coast of Oregon, there's a feature called the Cascadia subduction, and it's an earthquake fault zone. And that thing moves every 250 years. It has been 300 years since it has moved significantly. So we are in a race against time to make sure that we are making this corridor earthquake resilient. So if an earthquake does happen, this area can still be served by the interstate crossing this major river. We've been talking on this edition of ITE Talks Transportation with Greg Johnson. He's the program administrator for the Interstate Bridge Replacement Program. Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Bernie, you're very welcome. This has been a, a great opportunity for us to highlight this important project. So thank you.